And now, an ad from Dad. <clears throat> All right, save money on car insurance when you bundle home and auto with Progressive. Can I take these off? All right. What is this? This looks good. Wow. That's well made. Where did you get this? I'm talking to you with the hair. Yeah, where did you get this? It's good stuff. That's solid. That's not veneer. That's solid stuff. Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money when you bundle home and auto. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discounts not available in all states or situations. All right, everyone. We have a double podcast going today on both MLB and NBA feeds. We're going to discuss the NBA Finals for about the first 31 minutes. So if you came here for baseball, skip ahead to the 31-minute mark. And then at that point, we will break down the Wednesday slate of games. Hope you enjoy it. All right, let's do it. All right, you're back in the DFSR. It's an MLB and NBA podcast. It's Wednesday. It's May 29th. I'm Doug Norrie. That is James Davis. Oh, we have got it all going for you today. We're going to break down some uh, NBA action for the finals coming up here starting tomorrow night, Thursday. And then we'll go and look at the MLB uh, evening slate of games a little bit later on. But like I said at the beginning of the show, if you wanted to skip ahead, you know where to go. And you can see it in the show notes too if you want to miss some of this NBA talk. But we thought we wanted to jump on and talk about these finals. Okay, so I mean, there's so much going on here. It's the first LeBron-less finals in like the last seven years. That doesn't even make the playoffs. The Warriors are back again. There's a million storylines I think we can talk about um, as we kind of break down the finals. Just But your level of – I'll start here. Your level of excitement for these finals. The playoffs, I feel like, have been very interesting. But are you glad where we ended up here in terms of like storylines, in terms of evenly matched teams? I'm, I'm, I'm using the word evenly. You don't need to use the word evenly if you don't want to. But um, <laughs> Sure. Not, yeah. I mean, not I, my dream matchup was going to be Bucks warriors just because I think that ultimately the Bucks ran into the worst possible matchup for them in the Eastern Conference. And granted, it was like a 1v2 seed, so it's not like it was a surprise or right. they got unlucky or anything like that. But just Kawhi is the one singular defender that can handle Giannis probably in the entire NBA and they happened to run up against him before the final so I was a little disappointed by that um, I guess we'll see one, one thing I was like pleasantly surprised by when I went back because I had just forgotten I remember they had played one weird game during the regular season um, when Kawhi was out but I'd forgotten that they had beaten the Raptors had beaten Golden State by 20 in that game <laughs> right so there was there's definitely I think these teams are probably closer than a lot of people believe just because like, just in the same way Toronto was a bad matchup for Milwaukee, I think they can pose some matchup issues against Golden State. Um, they did beat them in both games during the regular season. One was that overtime game where Kawhi just popped the heck off for 37 points and eight boards. And then the other game was the one he missed. And the Toronto second unit was able to fill in more than adequately and get the job done. So, yeah, I think there's definitely definitely a lot going on here. And I, I would I really really just hope it's not a sweep. That's the one thing I'm terrified of. But with all the Durant craziness, potential boogie craziness, uh, maybe maybe there's a little bit of confusion on Golden State. So that's what I'm holding out hope for right now. Yeah, man, the the storylines are running pretty deep here. The Durant thing is the first and foremost one. That's like just it's the craziest news, and this is a new stuff like coming in with him sitting out. I mean, I, I, he sat out all Portland, and he sat out basically one game of the of the of the um the Rocket series, but. The, the fact he it looks like right now they are saying that he's they're optimistic he's going to play in game two and with the with the right calf strain he, he did travel to Toronto so that's a really good sign uh, that they didn't feel like they needed to rehab him like back home so the fact that he's going there means I feel that that's probably the best sign of all that they, he's going to play I, I I wrote a pretty long finals piece and that was the first question about whether Durant was going to play whether or not it mattered it, of course it matters they're a better team. But from a narrative, I'll, I'll go into the stats here in a second. But question, my question here is at a narrative standpoint. <laughs> that's a weird. I'm going to try to think of the way I want to phrase this. Would you rather him not play? I guess that's my point. It's not from a basketball point. I, it's it's crazy for people to think that like the Warriors are better without him. It, that's in, insane. But from like a narrative standpoint, would you rather him just like sit the series out here, go on to play with the Knicks next year or whatever he's going to do? Do you think it like does him any favors? This is like the the weirdest storyline of all time. The fact that we're even discussing this because it's not really from a basketball standpoint, but more from like a I don't know, just general fairy tale narrative standpoint. Like, what do you, do you want him to play? Do you think that's them putting their best foot forward? Like, what are your thoughts on Durant here? 
Yeah, so I have a lot of mixed feelings. You know, our general policy when we discuss things is we want all the best players to play yes. and to, for the best teams to win. And so I think from like a fairness perspective or, you know, when people, like especially if Toronto were to win, I think they would really rather win when Durant plays for Golden State, if that makes sense. I'm sure mm-hmm. they'll take the title either way. <laughs> so yeah, they don't get like, me wrong. Give it back. So. <laughs> no, we're just going to wait. Let's just wait a few weeks. Let's wait till Kevin's fully healthy and then we'll play this thing. Now, I'm sure they would be happy to win either way, but um, I feel like that's the way to achieve sort of the fairest result. I will say I feel like this series will be a lot more competitive <laughs> if Durant doesn't play. Right. So from that perspective, um, like just from a, a basketball fan, I'd like to see like a six-game-plus series. I think his absence would make it the most likely. Although I will say, just to keep spinning it back and forth, if Durant plays and he's less than healthy and tries to force the issue because he spent two weeks listening to how he sucks and Golden State doesn't need him and whatever, he'll go to the Knicks and they're still going to compete for a title and all that stuff. Um, I think that could actually oddly make the series competitive too. Like If he comes back at like 70% healthy and plays like and shoots like seven for 16 and you know kind of doesn't get a lot of rebounds and Kawhi just blows right by him like that could actually be crazy for Golden State's chemistry too and they're just general peace of mind so yeah there's so many different ways it could go and it's very very unpredictable as to how it's going to turn out yeah it's crazy because we kind of forget it's been three weeks since he's played like he he got hurt on May 8th um this and if this this is 21 days later right now so and then then you skip ahead to game two so you're going to be you're going to be looking at I mean, close, not a month. You're going to be looking like three and a half weeks of him having not played. And then, of course, with Golden State, just... Now, it's funny about Golden State. So, so the, you know, you said about people how he has to hear about how he sucks. Or or I don't know how people... I don't think people make the claim that he sucks. I think the, the claim is that... And I know you didn't mean this. But the, the claim is that, like, uh, Golden State's going to be better without him because... They just they they beat Houston at Houston for game uh, game six of that series, and then they swept Portland. I want to make a point after kind of like rewatching the tape because I rewatched games three and four specifically against Portland, and this probably isn't news. The Golden State Port the, the, the Portland matchup was like the single best matchup they could have gotten to not have Durant. Like this was a team that had been basically right. like played an incredibly long game seven game series against Denver was already completely undermanned because they had lost their basically second-best player in Nurkic before the playoffs started and were playing way above their heads already going into that series. It was kind of a foregone conclusion they were probably going to get swept. I think people probably think that Portland was better than they were. They, they're good. I mean, they're a playoff team, but this team was completely... You know, they have like pretty bad um, perimeter defense, like with McCollum. And McCollum's a decent defender, and Lillard, like, that's just the exact place you don't want to be. They didn't really have a place to attack, like in the small forward range without Durant. Like it was kind of all wrong for Portland. So I know that I know that Golden State looked great. They should have looked great against this team. I mean, frankly, it's like you don't really they don't really get extra points for playing that well. And so I think that Durant kind of gets a, a bum rap that that was the series that he ended up not being able to play. So. I think that it's completely overstated. I, I'm, I'm with you that I'd rather them just put their best foot forward, and it's going to be very, very weird <laughs> if Game Two he comes out and is bad. That is just going to be. I, you have to believe that NBA writers are just begging for a scenario like that, right? Like this is the number one thing they could write about. The other guy that I guess he can play is Boogie. Boogie says that Boogie Cousins says that he can play. Um, do you think we? He, he's been out even longer. I mean, he's been out he, since the beginning, basically the first game of the playoffs. Or second, I think he got hurt second game of the playoffs against the Clippers. Yeah. What do you think we see with him? I, I can't imagine he makes a huge difference. Like even if he were to start, like 15, 19 minutes, it's hard to imagine him going more than that per game. Like to start right with the conditioning, he's been he's been out for like almost he'll, he'll be going on a month and a half, two months now. Uh, what are your thoughts on Boogie? Does that like kind of change the narrative at all for you? Uh, it, I mean, I guess. Uh, so Cousins actually missed one of those games that they played against Toronto earlier this season. And he, well, it's kind of funny. So this Toronto team that beat Golden State twice early this season, one of those games was not Kawhi, one was not Boogie, and Gasol didn't play in either of them. So right. this is a very different Toronto team in a lot of ways than, and a different Golden State team too, with Durant being banged up and potentially Boogie as well. Um so I think he does make a difference. I think the arrival of Gasol kind of mitigates that to some degree. Like mm-hmm. Gasol was basically brought in specifically to deal with guys like Boogie. So it doesn't pose the same mismatch, mismatch issues that it would have before, prior to Gasol's arrival. So I guess I don't see it as a huge difference maker. Uh, right now, I know Boogie's saying he can play, but Kerr is listing him as questionable. So I don't know. Uh, I think that there's a lot going on there. It's like a combination of if, if he's really healthy enough, 
and whether he thinks it's going to possibly contribute because Looney has really stepped up and played an excellent playoffs here. And and I think they kind of like the elements that he brings too uh, in terms of just being a guy who's out there. You know, it's funny. I think both Durant and Cousins are such great singular talents that have kind of tempted the Warriors away from playing that classic Warriors style that we got used to in like 16 and 17. And now that they're both out and we don't have guys that like kind of need to get their touches uh, with both like, you know, just more role player type guys like Looney, Iguodala, uh, that, that let the other big three kind of shine. So I don't know. I don't know if Boogie coming back would be, I think Durant would very obviously be a positive. I don't know if Boogie coming back would be a net positive or not. The one thing that the Warriors clearly change, I, I'm going to speak all without Durant here because it's just easier to talk about him. Boogie really hasn't played enough um, to make huge, huge judgments about the Warriors, specifically like without Durant and everything. So I'm going to mostly just focus here on Durant. But one thing is for certain is that when Durant is not on the court, the Warriors just do play a lot faster. They push transition a ton. Um, they use Draymond to push transition. They their their modus operandi is to just get out in the open court as quickly as possible because. One, they they have missed. If if you can get like specifically like uh, Steph and Clay into like cross matches where they're gonna have people, the guys are gonna have trouble following them around the perimeter, or just get into transition threes, or just to move like just move quick. Like they have, if you have a guy like Draymond that can move so fast in transition and is so smart, that is such an advantage that you have that they just didn't do as much with Durant. The pace went through the roof without Durant in that last series with Portland. Like they were like running at like a one oh nine pace. Or something like that. I think it was 109, and I think it was 101 for the series, the the two series before uh, with the Clippers and the Rockets. Now, some of that's the Rockets because the Rockets do play very, very slow, uh, and Portland not nearly as slow, though they're not very fast. But it just it's it's just obvious what the plan is. It's like, well, we don't have Durant, we don't have another high-powered offensive um, guy here on the court that can just take guys one-on-one and get into ISOs all the time. Now we just need to push it, push it, push it. And so I think, you know, I, I, th- I think that's kind of one thing you're referencing when you say like that old warrior style. It's like this like up and down kind of game, getting guys into just mostly open three-pointers and then doing using back cuts as much, especially when they can get guys um, moving around. Because they, they run so much of their offense like around the perimeter because that's why they just keep Draymond so high. When, yeah, and less, less ISO with a superstar, less just like dumping it into Boogie so he can get his shots in the air, like... It, more moving the ball around, getting yep. clay space to be a creator sometimes, rather than just like a glorified, you know, PJ Tucker type or something. Um, yeah, just just that ball movement, uh, keeping everyone involved. Because I think that also for a guy like Draymond, that helps keep his head in the game on both sides of the floor. Oh too, man, so. dude, I posted yeah. these videos in this. Uh, there was just two two plays that completely stood out to me when I was watching rewatching these games. I was trying to make notes and like grab a play here. There was two like almost like back to back possessions. One was off, I think, man, I'm forgetting now, but I'm pretty sure they're both off made baskets where Portland makes a basket, Draymond just is instantly demanding the ball and then sprints up the court with it like point guard style and once he gets fouled and the other one they led to a transition three, if I'm remembering. I'm not going to watch the videos while we're talking because I can't remember, but I knew I posted both of them in the article. But that's like, you know, it's one thing to get transition baskets off of misses, obviously, right? Like this is where everyone's kind of, everything's jumbled. The makes are where you're supposed to be able to reset everything and Golden State... If, if that's going to be the plan with Draymond specifically is to not even allow that to happen, that really causes problems for opposing defenses. Toronto will have less of a problem with that. They have much better across-the-board defenders than Portland does, especially guys who can switch. I mean, just having Kawhi alone makes you makes your team just so, so much significantly better because he can guard anybody on the court. Um, but even guys like Lowry and Danny Green uh, are much better defenders than really almost anybody that Portland has, uh, no matter what the rotations they were running. They were just kind of kind of throwing anything at the wall seeing what would stick. Um, so I think that's that's one thing that could change just instantly from game one to game two in terms of, uh, just in terms of like overall offensive strategy. My other question is too, like a, a question I had here was, what do, they, what do they do with Kawhi on defense with no Durant? With, with Durant around, it's obvious. Like he's just gonna, he's just gonna mark Durant. I, like I don't think, and that's not really in question at all. But and I'm, I'm like fascinated to like see what even the plan is with Kawhi in game one, knowing that Durant's not going to be there and understanding they'll probably make a switch in game two. Do you have like a feel for sort of what they do with him on defense? I, this was one I, I watched and I just, I don't know, I really couldn't come up with a strategy. This is like the number one thing I want to see like in the first two possessions is like where, where Kawhi is basically stationed on defense. Yeah, I'm very curious to see that too. The one time these two guys met during the regular season, Durant scored 51 points. Um, yep. So, and that was an overtime game. So, I'll take that for what it's will or for what you will. But 
I think that Durant, Durant's a very different player than Giannis. Um, Durant will stretch the defense a lot more, and you really have to respect him out deep, whereas Giannis, you can sag off a little bit more. And, and by the way, Ben just, Simmons, too. Like, like Exactly. Kawhi got this. Point. Is that, yeah, Kawhi got this. Like the, and Kawhi is a great defender, so don't get me wrong about that. But the two guys that they had him specifically marked for the first two series, they didn't have him guard, have him guard Giannis for the first two games. But the first two basically series, let's just call, say that he guarded guys that are wanting to move downhill quickly toward the baskets. I like that's the only and that's and then you're saying just Durant obviously is just a different guy. Yeah, exactly. I mean Kawhi he listed a six seven, right? So he's not like this super tall, long, small forward type, right? Like he's he's medium sized small forward and it's really just his physicality, speed and strength that let him defend guys and play up a little bit. Uh, when you take a guy like Durant, and if Durant comes back, pull him out away from the basket, and like why is that going to be blocking Kevin Durant's three pointers? I guess is my point. <laughs> and so, and and having to push forward a little bit more and respect his range, I think that could actually be. It's not nearly as good a matchup as Giannis and Simmons, who play right into Kawhi's hands, basically, like trying to get down near the basket, trying to bang around. Um, yeah. So that's the first piece. So that being said, where does Kawhi go if Durant were to sit? Um, I mean, you, you talked about and spelled out a few different scenarios where he kind of plays center field and, and kind of tries to be disruptive, playing in the middle of the court and defending wherever they try to land. I don't think that's the highest possible use for Kawhi. I don't know that, but I don't know that there's a better answer either. Like if he, for instance, covers Clay or covers Draymond, the Warriors will just say, okay, <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> you, you stay over there. The rest of us will make it happen uh, with what we have left over. So I'm, I'm curious to see how they would use him. I would have to go back and just try to watch and see how Kawhi was deployed against teams that didn't have a very clear option. I mean, sometimes Toronto has kind of given Kawhi an off assignment just to kind of save his legs and rely on him to, or offensively. And maybe that's the direction they would go. But I don't know. Do you have a gut? feeling as to where he, they would have to my, my, yeah I, I, I try to like walk through every little different scenario to start I think that the the rest thing is important for him like this this has been max effort two series basically sure. for him um no doubt about it although I will say he was max effort against Philly and then they did do Philly did one of their adjustments was that they just kind of took Simmons out of the game and therefore Kawhi that defense assignment I don't think was as hard as like say the Giannis was one no. was for the last the last series by any means I think that like you're, look, the way to stop the Warriors is to make sure Clay and Steph can't get open shots. Is to blitz them like hardcore around the three-point line and hope that they one can't get that easy three-pointer off, and two that you blitz them enough that you throw off their timing enough where the back cut doesn't work either, right? Like that's that's the way to stop the offense. It's easier said than done. I I know that every coach understands like this is the way to do it. Then saying it is the saying it is much easier than actually doing it because most teams don't have the personnel to do it. Like we saw, Portland does not have the personnel to blitz and trap uh, Steph because he can split screens and he can just split double teams as, as much as really anybody can. And then you're just completely toast. They won't have that. That won't be harder to do against Toronto. And it's just still so, so hard to defend. So I think they're going to want to probably use Kawhi to get to disrupt as much as they can around that kind of game. And the way to do that would be to like basically have him guard either Draymond. I don't think that's the thing. Or to have him guard Iguodala and say, you do you can shoot as much as you want. Like if if, if Big Wadal is going to shoot forty percent from three on seven attempts or something like that, and or eight attempts because they're just get, they get into the looks, then if we lose by that, we lose. Like I don't I think that they'd be fine with that like that kind of equation. So I think that's my gut, and I'm fully ready to be wrong about that because I'm this one kind of did. <laughs> it was it was hard to know, but I think we'll know pretty quick. I will say too one thing about Toronto they showed, and this is why they're this is actually specifically why they're in the finals besides just the Kawhi went to another level thing, is that they have shown the ability to adjust when other teams have not been able to adjust. Like, their adjustments, and a, a miracle uh, heave by Kawhi in Game 7 against Philly uh, got him there, but they made defensive adjustments when they needed to. Like, they switched Kawhi into Butler more in Game 7. They did the Kawhi onto Giannis move that got them, basically, that basically mitigated the Bucks' offense. So I, I'm, I'm encouraged that, unlike some of these other teams, they've been make, they've been able to make just really good defensive adjustments specifically uh, to get them back in the game. Um, I'm just rolling through some of these other questions that we had because I know we're going to talk about baseball here in a little bit. But you know, the other the other key piece that I kind of threw out there, and then we can I can we can talk if you have any things that you're really looking for in the series, is this Raptors bench. I mean, what do you even make of the Raptors bench? They were the, they were the worst bench unit of all time in the Philly series, like completely unplayable guys. Like Van Vliet shot like three percent from three or something like that. Right. And then last series, 
these guys were closing games. Like Van Vliet closed the last two games of the series, and Powell closed the game before that. I'm getting the, the numbers wrong, but I know that's how they did it. Like Powell closed one of them, and Van Vliet closed mm-hmm. the, the last two over Danny Green. Like, is Latrude just somewhere in the middle? I feel like these guys played completely over their heads last series and were bottom of the barrel of the series before, and I feel like they're very, very important for this series because this seems to me, to me like a place where they might have an advantage over the Warriors. Yeah, so it's interesting. In that one game that Kawhi missed, uh, Van Vliet played 28 minutes, Ibaka played 29 minutes, De'Lon Wright played 21 minutes, uh, OG Anunoby played 19 minutes, Like, and they got really good, solid contributions from those guys, um, especially De'Lon Wright and Ibaka. Ibaka went for 20 and 12 in that game in just 29 minutes of play. So I think that essentially when you're playing against the Warriors, you basically have to ask yourself, well, how are we getting an edge here, right? right. And historically the Warriors' second unit has been a weakness of theirs, right? You know, like, they have guys that can contribute. There's the Iguodala types. They've been able to bring guys off the bench. But you're still playing some pretty untested names on the Warriors' side, right? Like, I know that you've gotten some inspired minutes from Looney and maybe Jarebko and uh, Sean Livingston here and there. But if you can get into those guys, like Van Vliet's a guy who's had some real moments in the NBA. Ibaka, too. I think that Toronto, if they're going to win this series, they're going to have to run hot with the second unit. I mean, if you're talking about DFS, like you're not going to play these guys for DFS purposes, probably, uh, especially given that you're just playing these like solo game slates or whatever. Uh, What are they called? Solo showdowns on FanDuel. So, you know, for DFS purposes, it probably doesn't matter very much. But yeah, for real life basketball, I think winning that 15-minute fight of the bench guys is going to be very meaningful. So I don't think Toronto has the edge necessarily, but I think they, they their bench, I think I do think, has more upside than Golden State's bench. For sure. And, like, you know, Golden State's, their firepower comes from the fact that they can play two out of Durant and Clay and Steph and Draymond all the time, right? Like when Durant's playing, like, that's their bench. Their bench is the fact right. that two of these guys are playing against your bench unit, right? And they're going to play 40-plus minutes each. And good luck getting your second unit to stop to to, and then when they you know obviously get all four back on, then you're really in trouble. I think that's that's the thing they're they're that's the big difference. That's the other huge difference besides just him being like a top three player in the whole NBA is, is having Durant. Is that your rotations now become really really deadly against these second units? Van Vliet specifically had so much problems, so many problems against Philly because they're so long. Like their their team is just huge across the board, and he is pretty small. That's not going to be as big of a thing with him with him against the Warriors. Um, and it wasn't as much with the Bucks either because guys like Bledsoe and Brogdon are much different than when it's like you're, I mean, I'm putting this in quotes, but your point guard and, and shooting guard or small forward or Butler and Ben Simmons is much different. I know they have Redick too, but um, having Van Vliet on the court against those guys is much different than when you are playing mm-hmm. like more traditional guard sets, which is what Golden State will throw at you, even though Clay, I mean, Clay's an uh, unbelievable defender. So I think Van Vliet can stay on the court a little bit more here. I think the Pal thing feels like Cinderella with a slipper. I, I don't know. It just all felt a little run hot to me with him. Like I just don't. I just don't see it as much. He's a good defender. He just he hit a lot of threes. He did get into his head one game where I think he, he thought he was the best player. He took like 17 shots or something like that, and I, it was looking a little weird about how many times he was shooting. So I'm not sure how much we right. see of him. But I, I'm th- those three guys: Ibaka, Van Vliet, and Pal are going to be pretty key here to getting Kawhi a few minutes of rest. And if they can just do just do anything but not get blitzed by the Golden State, I'm with you. I think they have a, a specific advantage when it comes to that unit. And again, I'm, I'm caveating that by saying that's without Durant. Like it's, this, is all, this is so weird to talk about. It's like you have to talk, like do an A-B test here. Like what is what happens when Durant's on the court? What happens when he's on, off the court? Um, all right, final thoughts here on the series. I felt pretty strongly going in and I was also more pessimistic about Durant being hurt which probably leads you can probably figure out where I'm going with this <laughs> with this bet but uh thoughts on where this series ends up um knowing that it looks like Durant's gonna be back game two thoughts on where the series ends up like in terms of who's gonna win is that what you're asking yeah 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 I mean we're like we're running up at like the 30 minute mark we're gonna do some baseball here so I'm figuring that we can probably start closing unless oh, okay. you have like, I, I, did, I, I wasn't sure if you wanted to go uh, into you had some stuff stuff in there too um I think the Warriors are gonna kill them <laughs> I don't know right. that's that's not like the most exciting answer but I do think that Toronto I think they have some of the same trappings that Portland did to me uh, coming into the series now they're healthy so that's a big difference um, but I think that it's really easy to look good against inferior competition. It's easy to forget now that Portland beat Denver in a best-of-seven series. Denver was a good team. Yeah. <laughs> Jokic just popping off for triple doubles. And, like, Denver played hard and was a really, really good team 
a team many thought could beat Golden State in a best of seven series, you know, with some luck on their side, obviously. And they just got dumpstered. Like they weren't even on the court and Golden State was missing their best player. Like I don't I don't know how Toronto coming out of a weaker East No, granted they they handled Milwaukee in a way that many didn't think they could either. But like Toronto almost lost to Philly. You know what I mean? Like I don't I just can't be scared by this team if I'm a Golden State fan. And I'm not, so, but I, I can be scared of Golden State, uh, even though I'm rooting against them. So, yeah, hopefully, hoping that Toronto can make it all happen, and I'm not optimistic for their chances. I think I'm giving the East more credit than you are. I think that the, these are not, like, these were not just, like, bottom-feeding teams. Philly, specifically, and the Milwaukee are just good. Like, they're both better than Portland. Philly, Philly had a 2.7 point differential over the point, course of the season. Like, yeah, they're, I mean, they're fine. Don't get me wrong. And I know that... Teams have pieces coming and going, and that's not as perfect a measure uh, when teams don't have their complete five for the whole season and stuff. But, like, I don't know. Like, we can't compare Philly to the Golden State, right? Like, Not that we would, but... Yeah, I'm not making that comparison. Like, H- I was more... Houston, Philly played Houston, do you think Houston would have lost to them? I don't know. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure about that one. I, I do feel... I feel like Philly... I mean, I was more comparing them all to Portland. I thought those teams... Both those teams are much better than Portland. So I wasn't... That's why... You know, I was thinking... I was trying to think about, like, what kind of team the Golden State had run into where they've had problems with it like they had problems in that Clipper series for a couple reasons one the bench played like out of their minds like Lou Williams and and, uh, Harrell but also the Clippers just very very physical in a way that like let's say Portland wasn't and so Mm. even Houston their physicality with guys like Tucker um, and to some degree Capella although they kind of did run Capella off the court like when they run into physical defenders this is like the one time you can start giving Golden State problems. I, I'm with you that Golden State's the favorite. So I'm, I'm mostly just looking like what are the paths to victory for Toronto. Sure. And that when you can get very, very physical with them, especially around the perimeter, like I said, like when you can blitz them, when you can just really rub Curry off screens and just like kind of just disrupt his timing just enough where, you know, he takes like that extra half like, uh, like split step or the stutter step, I guess is the word I'm looking for. These are the things that do cause like the rhythm and the timing of their game to just have problems, and Toronto is set up to do that. They are very physical. Lowry's a very physical guy. Uh, Danny Green's a fantastic defender if they can keep him on the court, and we said about Kawhi already. They can make adjustments in the block between Ibaka and, and Gasol, depending on what they want to do. Mismatches there. Not so much from the offensive thing, but just being able to make sure they have like very physical defenders down there. This is the one thing that like gives me hope about Toronto, is that they are a tough, physical team that kind of did, that can we're bullies like overused i don't really mean that i guess but they can they can they can disrupt you and they can cause a lot of problems and for golden state that is actually pretty important because i think with them all you're trying to do is speed bump them you cannot stop them on offense that is out the window this team cannot be stopped on offense they're just too they're too good but can you speed bump them and slow them down enough that you can stay in the game and i think toronto has the personnel to do that and they have a half court offense good enough to kind of slow the game down. Like this is the other thing Houston's able to do is that Houston just slows you down. This is why people hate watching Harden and the company, right? It's like, it's so boring. Yes, but this is the key. This is what you do. What are you going to do? Get in the transition game with Golden State? You'll get crushed. Like you can't do that. You have to slow the game down. You have to wind down the shot clock. You have to take shots late in the possession. You have to have a guy like Kawhi who can take shots late in the possession. Um, This is how you're able to stop them. So I did. I think think the path, I think the path just before we get out of here. Yep is Golden State gives minutes to guys that aren't fully healthy. This disrupts kind of what they have going on chemistry-wise. And for some, for whatever reason, Toronto is able to capitalize. And then the series is kind of just over before Golden State can readjust. I think that was kind of the, the path in 2016, right, with the Draymond ejection. Yep. Cleveland manages to squeak it out and take it home. Otherwise, outside of that year, Golden State's lost three games in the finals and their other three finals that they played, uh, including just sweeping uh, arguably better Cleveland team. Not not better than them, but better than this year's Raptors team um, last year. So, and Golden State has a lot of these question marks. I mean, Durant, Boogie, Steph, many forget. Well, now I was dealing with ankle stuff coming into the playoffs. There's a question mark as to whether he can hold up physically too. So, yeah, you're right. It's not impossible. I don't want to suggest that. I think that... It's very likely, though. That's my... Sure, and Vegas sees it like that right now. They're minus 290 favorites to take the series the Warriors are. I did bet the Raptors at plus 250, right? Or, excuse me, plus 270 right when it opened because it opened a little higher than that. And then it came down, and it's kind of... Now that Durant news has kind of ticked back up to where... um, I think it's right now it's Raptors plus uh, 270 
to win. If you, I got a text from someone, a buddy this morning, buddy Pack, shout out to this. This is a good idea because if you are betting, if you if you think that the Raptors have a fighting chance here, and I think they do, um, then you can get also get Kawhi at plus three twenty for MVP. It seems impossible that anybody else would be the MVP of the series <laughs> if they were able to win. So if you think. Like sure. if you think plus two seventy is a good number for Toronto, then the plus three hundred and change that you get on Kawhi to be MVP makes sense to kind of that makes sense as a bet as well. They kind of they work together in parallel. Um, yeah, I'm fascinated. This is gonna be great, man. I think game after game two with Durant coming back, if and when Durant comes back, will be one of the single biggest storylines that are just going to affect many teams going forward as well, um, depending on what happens just in terms of free agency and whatnot. So fascinating. Right, I'm gonna give you. A, I'm gonna give you a betting betting suggestion as well if you like golden state in the series uh bet their road games against toronto um golden state plus one in the first game against toronto here so that to me just seems nuts if they're minus 285 i get that that's building in that durant will probably come back at some point but if you can get golden state with a point then i'm happy to do that rather than just taking them in the aggregate over the course of the whole series one thing that's interesting too about this line last thing because i had forgotten about this piece is that this line started with golden state minus one and then flipped two days ago to toronto minus one is now back to golden state minus one so the points just keep coming back and forth around <laughs> around where the land right, i see it listed as plus one but yeah that's, for, for plus sense. one for who for golden state Oh, interesting. On my book, on my bookie, it's Golden State minus one right now. So maybe it's just depending on the book. Your, your thing is probably right. I'm not using an actual bookie. I'm losing. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, so yeah, and either way, it doesn't matter because either way, I'm positive that I'm, I'm just the, I'm set on different books, and they then it has been switching back, which means people are just kind of it, it, this first game at least probably feels very even a little bit toward Golden State because I think it's usually a plus two for the home court. I think it's like plus 2.7 or something like that for home court advantage. So it's still a little bit favored in terms of Golden State, even if you were getting the points. All right, buddy, enjoy the NBA Finals. I'm fascinated by this. Uh, and we'll maybe we can just check back in after game two, depending on what happens with Durant. Sounds good. Fall is finally here, and so is Old Navy's big fall sale. Get thousands of styles from just five bucks. All your fall favorites are on sale now. Layer up with $5 tees and $10 long sleeve tees for the whole family, and stock up on sweaters and dresses for just $15. Plus, save even more with up to 75% off clearance styles. Don't miss out. Hurry in for thousands of styles from just five bucks now at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 1015 to 1025, select styles only. Fall is finally here, and so is Old Navy's big fall sale. Get thousands of styles from just five bucks. All your fall favorites are on sale now. Layer up with $5 tees and $10 long sleeve tees for the whole family, and stock up on sweaters and dresses for just $15. Plus, save even more with up to 75% off clearance styles. Don't miss out. Hurry in for thousands of styles from just five bucks now at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 1015 to 1025, select styles only. All right, baseball, evening slate, Wednesday. We're going to skip over the Wednesday um, early slate of games because by the time this posts, I think those games will be uh, pretty much over. But we do have some interesting pitching options. We've got a couple stack options going here. Game and cores, always interesting. Robbie Ray and cores could strike everybody out, could be out of the game by the third, so we can talk about that one. Also, we have some pitchers maybe running into, into some better offenses. I always wonder your thoughts on some of these guys. When good arms run into offense, especially on maybe a later night. But where do we want to start with cash games, with pitchers? Our system is kind of calling Snell out way above the rest. Do you find that to be correct? Is this a place to just jam him in, knowing that he's much more expensive than the rest of the pitchers? Or um, is there anything to worry about with Snell, I guess, in this, in this kind of situation? Not especially. I mean, I think he's pretty obviously the best pitcher on the slate. Um, and I know that there are some other reasonable arms here. Uh, but Snell, kind of in a league of his own, in terms of, well, the combination of both his own underlying talent and the matchup. So for starters on Snell, 2.58 XFIP, 12.61 K rate. This guy is just an outrageously good pitcher. Um, he's actually improved by essentially every available metric this season. He's mm -hmm. striking out much more guys. He's walking far fewer. Uh, he is generating more ground balls. He's just outrageously good. And I know that the ERA is a little bit up, essentially on the basis of a higher BABIP and a higher home run to fly ball ratio, but everything within his control, he's just been absurdly good. And then you have the Blue Jays. I mean, the Blue Jays, you know, they've been a team that can hit a little bit in the past, but this season they've sucked, Doug. That's, I don't know how else to say it. I, don't, I can't put it any kinder than this. They've sucked. They're the worst team in the AL in terms of WOBA against left-handed pitching. They're third worst in the entire majors, which is pretty astounding, given that they play most of their games with the DH. 
the 25% K rate, super bad as well. So yeah, I think Snell, great matchup, by far the best arm, seems for sure like the safest option for cash games today. Yeah, it's hilarious when you put the context behind it, like you said, like with the DH, because it's like one thing when we kind of just lump all these teams together uh, sure. in terms of just comparing their WOBA and, and, and stuff like that uh, against different platoons or just in the aggregate or whatever. But then when you start to remember that they have a quote-unquote professional hitter hitting in the ninth spot instead of the pitcher, and they play in a freaking pitcher's park, I'm just got a hitter's mm-hmm. park when, the, when the, the roof is closed there. And it's been closed, I think it's permanently closed now because the roof is broken, I think I've read the other day. It's, it's been closed pretty much the whole season, um, but I think they can't open it because there's because there's roof repairs. So um, we're in a situation where this is this team is absolutely horrible. They do go righty pretty much down. They go righty pretty much down the lineup. So I guess if you're looking for a case to be made for them, but I, but I mean, Kayvon Biggio, Brandon Drury, Lords Guriel. I mean, these are the guys that are hitting like around like the, the sixth, five right. or seven spot. So yeah, no, Snell's, Snell's numbers are excellent. He's easily the best guy, but he's priced like that too. Like you're gonna need to pay a premium to get him into your lineups tonight. He's 11-3 on DraftKings, and I had it open for me real quick. Uh, he's 11-8 on FanDuel, with the next closest guy being Walker Bueller at 11,000. Now Bueller's under 10,000 on DraftKings. Where do you stand with a guy like him? Um, he plays the Mets. Do you feel like he's the sp- uh, pitcher two option? And do we have enough salary to roster him and Bull Snell together? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm not so sure about that as of yet, but I do think he is the pitcher two option. Um, he's just a good pitcher in his own right. He hasn't been quite as electric as he was last year. Uh, he's definitely given off some of those Ks where he was you know, touching 10 per nine last year. He's down to around eight and a half. But that's also come with a better walk rate. So, you know, you like to see that. He hasn't been going quite as deep into games. We know the Dodgers, especially with their young pitchers, try to be very conservative early in the season. Um, But, yeah, all signs, I think, still pretty positive for Walker Buehler. The fact that he's a minus 200 favorite, even when he's going up against Syndergaard, uh, pushes him over the edge in terms of just being a really, really good play today. So I think you take all that together. And, yeah, he's just a super solid option. I think if Snell didn't exist, I would be... Very happy to play Walker Bueller in as many lineups as possible. Uh, in terms of if we can afford him or not, I think that's actually going to come down to how some of these lineups shake out. Because, I mean, you mentioned a course game earlier, but there are three games with a double-digit total tonight that aren't in course. Like, that's right. Like, can you remember the last time that happened where we have three non-course games in a double-digit total? That's pretty crazy. And oftentimes when that happens, if we get like a, a surprising guy here or there creeping up towards the top of one of those lineups, we can actually kind of make up the difference. So I'm going to be sitting by the computer trying to figure out who's going to be playing, who's going to be batting towards the top of some of these lineups in the games with the great matchups against guys you've never heard of, like Genesis Cabrera or Ryan Carpenter or whatever, and uh, hoping to blend both Snell and Bueller plus some affordable bats in great matchups. Yeah, you know, um, usually you get those lines when you see like a game in Cincinnati or, you know, game in Texas. This is where these lines really get inflated. Um, those We don't get either of those parks tonight. We do get a couple of other hitters parks along with cores like the White, um, White Sox U.S. Cellular. It's a pretty good hitters park. But it's more yeah, you got Philly come, and Citizens Bank. Yeah, and, and, and like you said, it more comes down to some of these, just some of these like just weak arms. I will say for Bueller, the encouraging thing is his early season, and we talked about this last time he pitched because I think we podcasted um, for his last start, I believe, is that the beginning of the season looked a little bit rough for him in terms of just the strikeouts and the innings. He kind of got off to a slow start. That's not been the case. The last four games, he's gone 6-6-7-7, six, six, seven, seven, and he struck out 6-7-7-8 seven, seven, and only walked two batters in that time. So mm-hmm. to have the 28-2 walk to K to walk ratio means that he's just kind of pushing himself back into what we saw from mm-hmm. him last season when it was looking like he was just going to turn in. And he, and he probably was. This guy was a super stud. So it's not like he's a come-out-of-nowhere guy um, where he's looking like he's going to turn into something like an ace is ace. He's getting, he's starting to push up those numbers. The Ks are a little closer to a a K per nine than you're going to get out of some of the really, really top end arms. But if you're looking at a season stats, I'm I'm kind of more willing to take the recent run for him uh, over, over maybe, you know, the, the season as a whole, where else do you want to go here? We talked about Snell, Bueller, any other pitchers stand out to you? A little bit of a shorter slate here for Friday. Uh, No, not really. I mean, I think you can make a case for some of these lesser arms like, uh, Madison Bumgarner. I mean, maybe even if you're in a big tournament, you could think about Noah Syndergaard. Uh, certainly the ERA hasn't been clicking for him so far this year, but the underlying peripherals are essentially as good as they were last year. Uh, in fact, he's both added a, or added some K stuff, he's decreased the walk rate, and it's really just an inflated home run to fly ball ratio that's made him a, a worse pitcher this year. Uh, 
Syndergaard, too, just kind of an odd anomaly about him, is the BABIP allowed. Like, for a guy who strikes out so many batters, here are his BABIPs in the last seasons he's pitched. 330, 320, 337, 334. Like, at some point, I don't know, where there's smoke, there's fire. Like, maybe he's just always going to allow a high BABIP. But I think that... uh, I still think the underlying talent is there. And some of these other guys, like Snell, uh, or, or certainly in the pitcher two slot on DraftKings, like Bueller and so on, uh, I think Syndergaard definitely a very, very intriguing offbeat big tournament play uh, because he's still every bit the good pitcher he was last year. Throwing a lot of innings could really, really put up a big total if things break his way. You know, it's one thing I haven't looked at lately, and I feel bad because I hadn't really occurred to me as much this season and it has in years past is to is to equate some of those BABIPs to what the defense the defense behind you is to. Exactly. It's not always going to tell the whole story, but we had years, you know, for instance, when in Washington years past, where it was like, oh, Gio Gonzalez is a high BABIP. It was like, yeah, dude, the freaking defense behind him is horrible. They can't catch a ball. Like Cincinnati, the guys have high BABIPs. But with one, well, the BABIP doesn't count when the ball flies out of the park. But the, you know, when the defense... happens in cores too, right? Thin air, high BABIP. Right, exactly. Like if your defense behind you, and, you, and you know, the Mets have been perpetually bad for season over season with just kind of like non-prospects and guys that are just calling up. Like that will kind of compound on you over the over the, the long term, right? If the defense just isn't good enough, if you don't have like Omar Vizquel at shortstop, you know the difference yeah that's you know Ray, Ray Ordonez <laughs> well I said or I, you know why I said that because I was looking on Facebook the other day and some I have one buddy on Facebook that just always posted like these old MLB videos these like you know mashup MLB videos and they just get me every single time about just like watching highlights of baseball and one was an Omar just a strictly an Omar Vizquel one and they were just showing like his fielding highlights and oh my god the guy was just absolutely unreal like in terms of fielding so that was why that was that name was kind of stuck in my head uh, you kind of passed over Bumgarner real quick I do want to talk, ask your quick opinion about him in terms of where we land on what his sort of baseline projection should be. And the reason I ask is because if you look at 2000, really 2013 through 16 Bumgarner, he was, I'm going to call him a nine and a quarter strikeout per nine and under two walk guy for basically four years. Then he deals with some injuries and some other stuff for 17 and 18. The strikeouts really fall. Last year, the strikeouts really fall over 130 innings. And then the walks spike. But if you look at his numbers for the first 68 innings this season, he's back to where he was in, I'm going to call it peak Bumgarner years, which is that four-year stretch from 13 to 17. I mean, are you comfortable going back here with the numbers on him? Because I know our projection is probably sitting a little bit lower based on the last two seasons, but I wonder if there's some injury context behind that that might be behind him because the numbers now are looking like borderline elite sort of like at least K to walk ratio stuff. And he faces the Marlins and the Marlins are the absolute worst team in the league against uh, lefty <laughs> pitching, though they don't strike out sure. a lot. Um, I can I do. I mean, where do we land on him in terms of like, is he just maybe a better option than Walker Bueller if, his, if this season's numbers can be believed? Uh, yeah, Bumgarner's a really good pitcher. I wouldn't dispute that for a second. Um, he's going deep into games too, more than six innings per start, uh, striking out a guy per inning, Walker f- walking fewer than two guys per inning. And I think your point about the matchup is a really strong one here too. I, I think just the part where, like his biggest weakness probably is going to be when he leaves balls up in the zone. Like one thing he doesn't do as well as some of these other guys that we've discussed today is keep the ball in the park. Uh, you know, he is allowing 1.3 home runs per nine this season thanks to a 37% ground ball rate. Yep. So that's really that's really bad. And that's actually what pulls the xFIP up. Like if his ground ball rate were like 48%, like Bueller or one of these other guys, uh, you would see an xFIP in the low threes. I still think that probably gives him a little bit of downside, but I think the Marlins are bad enough at generating pop that that probably mitigates that weakness. Uh, Miami, a good pitcher's park, not as good as Bumgarner's home park, so that could be a slightly problematic for him. But sure, yeah, I think Bumgarner is a, a totally fine play. Yep, you get with Bueller, you get a few less implied runs on the Mets side, 3.1. He has, He's always going to have, would just be on the Dodgers as opposed to Bumgarner being on the Giants, going to have more win expectation on his side. Like he's a minus 200 favorite right now. Bumgarner only minus 12, even against the Marlins. And that's mostly because when Bumgarner looks at the lineup card that the manager um, submits, he's like, Joe Panic. Mike, yes, yes, Yastrzemski. That's Carl Yastrzemski's grandson. My dad and I were texting about this weekend um, with the Billy. I said because he was bummed about the Billy Buckner thing. I said, but it's all right. Yaz's, Yaz's uh, grandson was called up. That made him feel better. My dad's an old school uh, Red Sox guy. But then like Posey, Belt, Longoria, these guys are just kind of just corpses. Also, yeah. it's not too dissimilar from the Mets, um, but they also face Pablo Lopez, and they still can't like generate many more win odds. So that's really the Giants' problem. All right, uh, let's take a real quick break. One more quick break, and we'll be back here to talk about stacks. 
Cool concert venues, a vibrant downtown, miles of hiking and biking trails, and much more. Home to North Dakota State University, Fargo is where you'll find an innovative entrepreneurial spirit and job opportunities after graduation. Experience NDSU. Visit today. All right, let's talk some stacks here. We do have the game in cores, but you were mentioning that we probably, or not probably, we may not have to even go this route knowing that cores, excuse me, the, the sites, cores itself does not do this. The sites will inflate prices based on teams heading in to Colorado for a series, rightfully so. Um, but again, they do it a little bit more. They do it more for that stadium than they should with some other stadiums that aren't too, too far behind them in terms of park factors and whatnot. So one, do you want to pay top dollar for either side of the Ray Jeff Hoffman matchup in Colorado, or are you seeing enough kind of gas can bum type guys that we can maybe target in some other spots? Oh, I think there's by far like enough good spots elsewhere that you don't need to overstress about getting guys from cores. I mean, obviously if you can, like that cores game looks good to me. Uh, you got Robbie Ray and Jeff Hoffman, particularly the Diamondback side going up against Hoffman and his 8.1 ERA. I get that it's a small sample size. Um, I, I think if you can get guys from that, game then you're more than welcome to but you certainly don't have to like i said three games with a 10 or higher total another game with a nine and a half total there's just a lot a lot doug of bad pitching going tonight Um, i I would probably just kick it off with the first game on the slate this detroit baltimore game where you have a real meeting of two aces and ryan carpenter and john means um you know household names for obvious reasons (laughs) in the pitching department but yeah i mean these two guys Neither is really qualified to be a major league pitcher where, from where I'm sitting. Uh, Carpenter has given up 14 earned runs in the 14 innings he's pitched so far this season. Uh, 4-7 XFIP says that he's run a little bit bad, but the man is just letting balls fly out of the park in terms of home runs. Actually, get this. So this is actually over the course of all of his major league innings. He's now been in the majors for 36 and a third innings. He's averaging 3.22 home runs per nine innings stack. That's really high. <laughs> that's so many home runs to be allowing. I think that's 13 total home runs. So if you're looking to stack for big tournaments, uh, taking the Orioles against Carpenter uh, could be kind of interesting, even though the Orioles aren't great. And then, of course, taking the Tigers the other way. Another fairly bad team. We get it. Uh, but going up against John Means. When you have teams that are this bad with in a game with a total this high, both teams imply to score uh, more than five runs here. That's like exactly the spot you want to cash in because everyone's price is going to be low on account of these teams being so bad, and you just get such a sick matchup. So I'm, uh, for maybe the first time all season, excited to stack both Tigers and Orioles on the same night. I do think you'll see some of these Orioles as, now the prices have come up, but guys like Nunez have actually had a decent amount of ownership against lefties specifically, um, and he's capitalized on those opportunities too. So I think you're going to see, even though his price on FanDuel is up in that 3000 range, I think you're going to see it. Uh, him get some ownership. Same with Hanser Alberto. This guy has had a long history of just not doing a whole heck of a lot, but um, has Jonathan VR batting first too. You know, coming out of the shortstop spot, we played him uh, against Detroit a few games ago, and he popped off, hit the home run. So yeah, uh, they are. Looks like they're going to. You know, they do get a weaker around the top of that lineup. Like I said, we have seen ownership around some of those guys, and these Detroit guys. We've seen people have played these guys too. Now it's against the lefty. They might hit Beckham first. I'm not positive about that. This is mostly righty bats though. Castellanos, Goodrum. Uh, Miggy Cabrera, if he's in the lineup. Uh, again, these names are not guys you typically want. You typically want to stack against these guys, right? Brandon Dixon and Dewell Logo and guys like this. But uh, on the rare opportunity that you're going to get uh, a weaker lefty and you're going to get a very righty-heavy righty order whose prices are going to be pretty low, all things considered, because, again, they deserve to be low. They're not that good of an offense. I'm fine going there uh, in terms of stacks. Any other stacks that are kind of standing out to you here by the way, I do want to say, too, you mentioned it, but a 10-plus run total for these two teams is really look yourself in the mirror time for, for the opposing pitcher. Like when you're course, getting yeah. a money or you're getting a run line that's just that's butting up against what's happening in cores. I know it's Baltimore, and that is something of a hitter's park. That really just is a testament to what kind of just just real bums we have going here. Any What other stacks standing out to you? Yeah, so I, I like the Braves going up against Genesis Cabrera. Uh, that is a real name. This is a guy coming out of the Cardinals system. Just a complete and utter non-prospect. There's really no nice way to spin it. In AAA this season, Cabrera has pitched 39 and two-thirds innings, has a 6.35 ERA and a 6.35 xFIP. So this guy was underqualified for AAA, and I was, I was going to go in the majors. He's going to pitch against Freddie Freeman. Like I just don't know. 
I guess the Cardinals just don't care. And they're like, mm, I don't know. Somebody's got to come up here right. and pitch. I don't know what they're seeing that other people aren't. But, yeah, the Braves appropriately here. I'm sorry, this is the Phillies. The Braves also have a good one. This is the Phillies. The Phillies appropriately here. Uh, one of the very highest totals on the entire slate. Uh, significantly higher even than the John Means-Ryan Carpenter game. So, yeah, grabbing Phillies against uh, Cabrera looks like a fantastic spot. I mentioned the Braves as well, only because they, incidentally, also are their minus 144 favorites in the game with a 10 total against Anibal Sanchez, who, you know, you can't say his name without saying Anibal Sanchez, who's still in the majors. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Anibal Sanchez, uh, just another guy. I mean, this just when you see some of the lines that these guys can put together and still be major league pitchers, it's astounding. Sanchez this season, 5-3-1 walks per nine, 5-3-9 XFIP. He is, is just astoundingly bad. And I think the only thing he has going for him here, Doug, revenge game going up against the Braves. So if you like, if you like the revenge factor, oh, you know I love Sanchez. the revenge factor. That's one of my favorite <laughs> things. I, I, the, the greatest running storyline in the NBA playoffs was that Greg Monroe had a revenge game against anybody the, the they were going to face, uh, the, the Raptors <laughs> were going to face. That he he was going to be able, he was going to be able to call a revenge game. Bucks, six, like it, it was just it was all going to work That's for him. Really or should be Bucks Raptors. Yeah, like it was all going to work for. Him. Um, all right, yeah, Sanchez so too. Yeah, but uh, but yeah, Sanchez. It's so funny too. Like, if anyone's going to want revenge, it's going to be the Nationals against Sanchez on his own team because Sanchez was actually quietly like awesome last year. He gets a nineteen million dollar two year deal with the Nats, and it's just like my work here is done, my friends. <laughs> one one good season with the Braves, I was back for a year, dusted off the old you know six four one ERA that I had the previous year, ran hot for one season, nineteen million bucks. I'll be out there. I'll keep pitching. Don't worry about that. But in terms of actually getting batters out, uh, I'm going to have to leave that to the other guys. So, yeah. Poor I promise to show up really. once every five days. <laughs> I will be there once every five days. Do not worry about that. What you exactly. get He's out of like me. George Costanza in the office just like doesn't, doesn't care that he has nothing to do. He'll just sit there all day. He's like, do you have any idea how rich I am now? Why would I do anything? Like, <laughs> uh, like I'm going to come here and do the absolute minimum, and I'm just going to just double-check with my agent that this money is guaranteed. Oop, it is. See you every five days. All right, we're going to get out of here. DFSR.com is the site. DFSR.com slash deals will get you the podcast listener. A special deal uh, on our premium projections powered by our good friends over at Lineup Lab. Optimal lineups for FanDuel and DraftKings. MLB, uh, NFL when that season comes back around, NBA obviously as well. So go check it out. DFSR.com slash deals will get you started. Buddy, enjoy baseball, enjoy basketball, enjoy it all on Wednesday. Thanks, buddy. It'll be hard not to. Peace. Fall is finally here, and so is Old Navy's Big Fall Sale. Get thousands of styles from just 5 bucks. All your fall favorites are on sale now. Layer up with $5 tees and $10 long-sleeve tees for the whole family, and stock up on sweaters and dresses for just $15. Plus, save even more with up to 75% off clearance styles. Don't miss out. Hurry in for thousands of styles from just 5 bucks now at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 1015 to 1025, select styles only. Thanks for holding. There are 30 calls ahead of you. Hey, Mom, what's for lunch? I'm on the phone. Can you start something? Oh, yeah. So, you're stuck on hold with your health insurance company again. And while you... Press 4 to continue to hold. Mom, do we have a fire extinguisher? (gasps) Life goes on. So choose WEA Trust where you'll talk to a real person every time. Put your trust in us. WEA Trust. Offering health insurance for state and public employees.